What a city, state, or nation recognizes and preserves is a good indicator of what it values. A trio of Portland landmarks that are vital to the city's black history may soon be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with You Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source Health Plans, for supporting the show. Up next, Kimberly Brown, owner of Dean's Beauty Salon and Barbershop in Northeast Portland, and Kim Moreland, who owns Moreland Resource Consulting and is president of the Historical Society, Oregon Black Pioneers. We talked about Brown's family business, the oldest Black-owned business in the state, what the historic designation would mean, how Portland has changed since her grandparents opened it decades ago, and what other businesses and landmarks deserve to be remembered. Here's our conversation. Kim Moreland, Kimberly Brown, thanks so much for talking with me today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Kim Merlin, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little of the background of how we got to this point where we're waiting federal recognition for three important landmarks in Portland? Sure. This is a combination of years of research and study and hard work of several community members who have been identifying, identifying buildings significant to African American history since, you know, the late 90s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, today, we're here because um, of the leadership of Brandon Spencer Harder, who's the historic resource manager, who managed to find funding to help not only with these three nominations, but an umbrella document called the African American uh, Historic Resource Multiple Property Documentation, which is uh, kind of a history book and an umbrella document that set the stage for these individual nominations. And and that was approved by the National Park Service in July 2021. And that that did include a single nomination of the Billy Welp Elk Lodge. And so Brandon um, hired um, the the Architecture Resource Group and myself to um, research and develop nominations for Dean Beauty and Barbershop and Mount Olivet and well as the Golden West Hotel. And so it's a long journey. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe let's go right to to, uh, Kimberly Brown and and your business. Um, You talked about Dean's um, Salon and Barbershop. Can you paint a picture for us of of this business, which... uh, you know, is very close to your family, has been around for decades? I would say that Dean's Beauty Salon and Barbershop is the biggest, biggest entity in my life from from the time I was born. Um, the salon was built a few years before I was born, but my grandparents had a dream of holding a beauty salon and a barbershop um, back in the 40s when they were in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was just a beauty salon because my grandfather hadn't gone to barber school yet, but my grandmother had gone to beauty college down in Alabama. She went to the Madam C.J. Walker School of Beauty. And they moved here in, oh, well, my grandfather moved here in 43, I believe. And then my grandmother came out in 44. But I just found a letter just recently um, from my grandmother to my grandfather mentioning that um, before she came out here. And it was just a letter about, you know, moving to Portland and starting their life here. But also in the, in the letter it said, I can't, um, do they have a lot of beauty salons there? Mm-hmm. So they were already on that journey before they even touched soil in Oregon. 
that they were going to open up a beauty salon and here it is 2022 and we're still around. So for people who might not know exactly where your business is, can you describe where, where it is and how it's changed through the years? Um, it's in the Elliott neighborhood. It's um, right on 2nd and Hancock, not too far from the Moda Center, not too far from Broadway, um, right off of Martin Luther King, which, you know, was Union, Union Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the neighborhood when after Van, after the Vanport flood where the... Um, most of the African-American population moved to the Elliott neighborhood. So we were right smack dab in the middle of that. And my grandparents first bought a house on that street with their four. Well, at the time it was just three children, but they had one while they were living there. And um, there was an empty lot, a couple doors down. And my grandmother and grandfather decided that they were going to buy that lot and put a beauty salon there. But prior to that, she had a salon in her home, in the basement of her home. So, um, uh, Kim Moreland, when you think of that period of time in Portland's history, and can you put put um, put deans into that into that space? Like, what did it mean to the community at the time, and, and the fact that it's still going today? I, I really believe that dean is the epitome of that experience of people who came from the southern states in hopes of better wages, a better life for their children. Um, they were very um, brave. They left what, they, what was familiar with them and, and worked in, you know, military, you know, shipyards uh, and lived in military housing. It was probably the first time that they lived within an integrated um, environment. Um, and even those who did not live in the military housing, it was just a new experience for everyone because Portland black population um, exploded from the previous 2000 to almost 20,000 overnight. And even when the Vanport, uh, some of the Vanport uh, workers went back to the Southern state, you still had 10,000, uh, you know, workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, still know who stayed in Portland. And so eventually in 1950, Portland had a a black population of almost 12,000. And prior to the war, it was only 2,000. And the Vanport flood just aggravated the housing situation. And so they were forced to open up housing for African-Americans. And even the public housing uh, um, did not respond to the need um, and so it was, it was an interesting dynamic, but in spite of all that, though, um, not growing up in Portland, I wish I lived there <laughs> and grew up there because William Avenue was happening, you know, <laughs> and they had a lot of black churches and black communities. And I love hearing the story. It's very similar to how I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, but it was, but it was, you know, a very, um, thriving community with rich heritage and culture. And so. Um, and Dean was right in the middle of it, you know. What was it like to grow up in that, in and around this business that you now run? Um, and how do you look back at that time? Is it fond memories or is it painful or both? Oh, it was great memories because, um, you think about the salon being, um, where it is located now. And we went to Immaculate Heart, which is up near Dawson Park. So mm-hmm. I'd say about 10 to 12 blocks from um, the salon. So we would walk home with the neighborhood kids, all the kids that lived over there. We lived a few blocks to the east 
our, 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 my parents brought a house. And, um, so we would walk to the shop because, you know, we were, we weren't latchkey kids because we went to the business and we stayed at the business till our mother got off work or till my dad got off work. Yeah. And, um, walking down the street, you know, you got all these kids that live, you know, now kids live all over the city, go to different schools, you know, they transferred it in. But back then we all went to the same school and we all lived in the same neighborhood. So we're walking home and kids are dropping off block by block, going to their houses. And so you were always, you were protected because everybody knew who you were. Those Miss Dean's grandkids. So you also couldn't do anything bad because right. those are Miss Dean's <laughs> grandkids and those are Mrs. Brooks' grandkids and those are such and such grandkids. And there was always a sense of, normalcy and then not only did we grow up with our generation of kids but most of those generation of kids are were my mother's and her brothers and her siblings friends kids so everybody knew everybody we it's we still have that problem now we're like where are you from you're not from portland because we believe we know everybody that lives here because at one time they all lived in the elliot well they mostly lived in the elliot neighborhood so it 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 brings it's a lot of fond memories growing up in um in that area, even though I didn't live there, we lived close enough by, you know, we could walk home. Right. And when we got a little older, we walked home. But prior to that, it was the best time you went to Matt Dishman, which is Matt Dishman then, now, now. But when we were kids, it was not street. And everybody knows everybody. So you always felt, you know, you could walk home by yourself and you weren't felt like somebody was going to snatch you or do anything to you because somebody's mother or grandmother or father or grandfather or uncle knew who you were. And I remember a guy telling me in, at um, Matt Dishman at the time, Knott mm-hmm. Street, he said, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. <laughs> and I was like, okay, who are you? And he said, you don't need to know that. And he was a teenager. He was an older teenager. I was probably about 11, 12, and he was like 15, 16. Anyway, he turned out to be his mother came to the salon and she was one of my grandmother's first clients. And they still come to the shop to this day. And it was, he was like looking at his, his brother, his older, him and his older brothers have always looked out for me. And so to this day, they're like in their seventies and eighties now. And they're like, you're our little sister. I'm like, okay, I know that I've been your little <laughs> sister since 1972, <laughs> but that's how that community was. And it's, it's, it's really sad that it's not like that anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, that seems like an incalculable thing to, to, to lose. And, um, yeah, it really is. When you think of, you know, what, what would it mean to have this business recognized as a historic place? For me, it would be, um, a dream that my grandparents started and it's being fulfilled. This is what they wanted. They weren't trying to get rich or anything by opening up a beauty salon and a barbershop. They were just trying to look for a way to support their family and coming from the South when African-Americans weren't, you know, this is pre-integration. So therefore, right. this is what they knew. They knew to take care of, that they had to have their own business. They knew that they needed to make their own way in this world without um, without being, you know, the, depending on the state or the government to take care of them. Mm-hmm. That, that's not what, that's not what, who our people are. That's not what we think about when we think about making a way. We don't really think about being rich. And I'm not talking about today's terms I'm talking about back then. They were just looking for a way to have generational wealth by having a home, having a business where everybody could come work in the business. And um, we've lost that. And so to be to be recognized nationally would be amazing because this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted their family to 
be able to, and then to turn around and to help other families and other people, you know, realize that no dream is too big. You can always, I mean, cause you're thinking Jim Crow South and mm-hmm. you're talking black people that are moving to a place that they've never been away. Like Kim said prior earlier to somewhere they've never been before. They've never, they don't know anybody there and um, leaving it everything they know. And they came out here and they, they had a dream. And so if they can realize that dream and 70 years later, we're still doing it. You, anybody can do anything. You just have to have the determination and the will. And, you know, there are there's going to be obstacles because we're talking redlining. We're talking about no loans for black people. That means that you had to buy it when they bought their house. They had to take every penny of their savings yeah. and buy that house because there was no such thing as a mortgage for black people in the 50s. And um, Kim Moreland, uh, can you describe a little bit, you know, what does it mean like logistically and um, just like practically speaking for a place to be? listed on the national register of historic places um how do how do you get on the list and what kind of obstacles have there been to businesses in portland like uh deans and others getting that recognition that is offered to other businesses it's quite an expensive process so that was really a good thing that the um deans and the other two nominations was able to have the cost covered by the city of portland um, funding mm-hmm. and because you have to hire a consultant who who have to go through this process of not only determining the cultural significance but the architectural significance and um, and so it, it's a really complicated form. Um, some have done it on their own, like Raymond, the late Raymond Burrell. He completed a form for the Vancouver First Avenue Baptist mm-hmm. Church on his own on his own. But um, so once you have a draft nomination, you um, submit it to the local historic preservation commission, which I'm a member of. And, right. And you also, after their approval and review, it goes to the state historic um, advisory committee. And this time there's a, a few challenges with that meeting when we have some racial slurs. Um, so they had to shut the meeting down. But then, um, but we came back later and it was up, all three nominations were highly, um, accepted and approved by the the state committee. And then from that point, we take any comments that we receive from both of those local bodies, we revise it and we submit it to the National Park Service. And that's where we are today. Um, we were so happy to receive, you know, support from, um, Congressman Blumenauer, right. uh, he wrote just a wonderful letter of support, and and we're hoping to hear back by mid March on whether those three nominations were approved. And I understand that um, uh, Blum- Congressman Blumenauer really um, those those uh, nominations really resonated with him, and he really um, enjoyed reading them. So the meeting Kim's referring to was a public Zoom call where less than an hour into that meeting, one or more people started typing racist and homophobic slurs in the meeting's chat feature and the question and answer section. The state's Historic Preservation Commission eventually reconvened later and approved the landmarks. Let's take a quick break. So 
So it's a it's a cumbersome process that takes a lot of bureaucracy. It takes a lot of money. Um, like you said, the city is is chipping in in this respect. But then, what does it mean if and when it's approved? Does that mean a building can't be can't be touched or is harder to? Not exactly, you know? but it. You know, I think a lot of things happen. Um, some of the tangible um, benefits is you're now eligible for a state special assessment. And that's when a property owner can freeze their taxes. And with the understanding that the money that the, the free froze at for 10 years at that, at the level where they, um, enter into the special assessment okay. program, that you take that money to rehab the building. And then, um, 10 years later, you can opt to for an extension of that 10 years or you, or you start to pay your taxes at, at that new le- at that new level. I think they call it a remap. Mm. And so that's a great benefit. And another benefit is you are now eligible for grants. The National Trust has several grants for both churches and retail businesses. And you know, the Golden West Hotel that if they wanna uh, we have the, the room for any physical improvements and capital improvement to the exterior of the building. And one of the great things about the national, but being listed today, but you also have, um, access to so many different resources and, and, um, that, uh, were not available if you wasn't part of this, um, registry. It sounds like that's another, um, you know, it's another government obstacle that has stood in the way to lots of businesses, uh, like Kimberly's and others that, that didn't have access to these funds for yes, and, explicit and it, reasons. It's about being aware to, uh, the funding out there. And, and I think, and I wanted to mention one intangible benefit. Mm-hmm. And that to me, it, it plays one small part in, stopping the erasure of the black heritage and culture. These buildings now stand as a monument of a culture that was once thriving in that area, especially Mount Olivet Baptist Church, which has been there since, you know, the 20s. And it was really a part of that community and one of the first churches to move over to from the downtown to the east side and, and build their own building um, in a very beautiful building. Um, it was the wasn't a storefront like most of them were. Uh, Bethel AME is another church that built a beautiful edifice, you know, that was built for and by African Americans. And, and that was torn down during uh, Memorial Coliseum. And so as these structures are demolished, you lose so much memory. And it, and I just think that, you know, Golden West Hotel is an anchor uh, in that old town and Japanese Chinatown and, and things is, you know, just a, a reminder of what once was, especially as if you, you know, notice that things is just nestled between these huge developments, you know, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, if we're not being demolished, we're being like just enclosed by these large apartment complex and the Billy Webb Elk Lodge is another example of that who you know is a reminder of the thriving black community the importance of the the William Avenue YWCA and the Billy Webb Elk Lodge has been a staple in the black community and still is 
So I, I think that's one very important and tangible benefit. Well, let's stick with the neighborhood. Kimberly Brown, can you talk a little bit about how the neighborhood has changed around Dean's um, and whether there's certain, has that accelerated in recent years or has it been kind of a consistent thing? Um, yes, it's definitely accelerated in um, recent years. Also, like Kim was saying, it seems like we're being enveloped by all these large complexes, apartment buildings, condos. I'm not sure what they are, but they're everywhere. It's just something when I'm driving down the street, I'm, it's always interesting that used to, Portland used to have a really pretty lands, I mean, a skyline. You could see yeah. a skyline. You drive anywhere in the city and you could see the sky. You could see what was going on. Now that all these buildings, you're start, you, you don't see anything but taller buildings. And I think that that has taken away from the, um, the hominess, if I would say that we use that word for Portland, because Portland is not a big city. It's a small town. I mean, yeah. it's a big town. And I think the people that live here like it for that reason. But it's and then the, the homeless, the homelessness population is is in steadily encroaching onto the salon, into the, the neighborhood. And that, you know, before, I mean, the neighborhood was pristine. You could run up and down the streets. You could ride your bikes. People ride their bikes now for just general riding. But as kids, we rode our bikes up and down Rodney. But it's mm-hmm. so dangerous now because there's so many people in a small area. You know, you take a one house that was just a single dwelling house. Then you put 500 people in it because you build a whole complex on top of it. And so it's not, as, you know, it's not, a, it's not a neighborhood anymore. It's more of a, a way to get to the motor center, a way to get to downtown. It's not a community like it used to be. The neighborhood has changed drastically. And um, that's what I miss about the neighborhood. I wish that um, the city planners, as it will, as it is, um, had planned a, a better city and not just for Elliott, but for the entire city of Portland. Cause I think, that's changed the landscape because you could jump on a bus and get wherever you wanted to go and everybody could tell you how to get there. And now it's so confusing. It's so congested that it, Portland isn't the same city. And uh, Elliot's definitely not the same neighborhood. There's, the, um, I hate the fact that most of the people that still come to the salon have to drive in to get to the city, to get to the salon where they used to be within walking distance, or like I said, it could catch a, um, a bus and get to the salon. They're getting, they're having to come from, you know, I'll be there in 30 minutes because I live in on 188. And they're like, wow, that's, you know, people used to walk to the shop. How has the inside of the shop changed over over time? Um, it hasn't changed much. I know my mom, who was my predecessor, she was before me, she was, and she took over after my grandmother passed. But um, she did a little bit of work in the shop, but it still has the hominess of what well, my grandmother's. Now, it was bare bones when my grandparents opened it up. But and we, so we've got new flooring and new lighting and things like that. But yeah. as far as the way it feels in the shop, you still feel comfortable. You still feel like my grandmother might walk around the corner at any any given time. <laughs> we have clients that are that are in their 90s and some that are in their early 100s. I just found out that my childhood babysitter is still alive and she's 105. Wow. So I need to call her. <laughs> and she's calling folks on the phone. But, um, you know, because this, the shop still has that magnet. It's still a community place. People still come in the shop and just say, oh, I just used to come here or my mother used to come here or my grandmother used to come here. I just want to pop my head in and say hello. So the salon is a really cool, cool space, and I don't want it to absolutely change. I know there's some probably some 
updates that probably need to be done just to bring it into the 21st. What century are we in? 21st century. <laughs> I have to ask myself that all the time. <laughs> and yeah. so um, I think that would probably be the main thing. But I want to keep that hominess. I don't know if you know this, but the salon and the barbershop are actually separate places because mm-hmm. when the shop was open, the barbershops were for men and salons were for women. Right. So we actually have two physical addresses. We have a, a door inside that separates, that you can walk through to the salon. You don't have to go outside anymore. But the thing I like about it is that it is separate. So the barbershop is over there for the men and the salon is for the ladies. And that's the way it was supposed to be. Now, don't get me wrong. We have men that come to the salon and we have women that go to the barbershop. But the, the, but the actual appeal of the place is still the same as what my grandparents intended. So, Yeah. Why well, mess with success, right? Right. It's, absolutely. It's, 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 it's stood the test of time. Um, Kim, can you... Talk about, we mentioned um, the Golden West Hotel a, a little bit, but we haven't really talked much about this place that um, was really kind of a phenomenal nationwide significant hotel. Uh, can you describe a little bit about kind of its rise and, and um, its founding and its place in Portland history? Sure. Um, it was founded by W.D. Allen and his wife. Um, I believe her name was Lillian. And... They opened up, they operated the hotel from 1905 to about 1930. Mm-hmm. And um, it served as a really black cultural hub. It had, um, it originally opened for transit um, porters who were, you know, <clears throat> working on the, the Union Pacific Railroad. And, and um, in, ni- in 1883, Portland became the North Permanent for the National Railways system, mm-hmm. and um, and so that brought in um, just more African Americans who came to work on the railroad, and lot of course African American males could not stay in a local hotel, and so W. D. Allen found an opportunity to serve um, the black community by providing you know housing long-term and temporary housing for porters and those working in the nearby hotel. And eventually those men brought their wives with them. And that's when you start to see that transition from the west side over to the to the east mm-hmm. side where they began to buy homes and and live in that area, which is now Memorial Coliseum. Um, which, but, um, and so he had a barbershop and he had ground floor retail with barbershop. He had a soda fountain. Um, the hotel, I believe, let me look at my notes here, had a hundred hotel rooms and the ground floor commercial space for local black-owned businesses um, like Richard Bogo, who's a descendant mm-hmm. of Dick Bogo, the second African-American city council member. And his father had a, um, a barbershop in the hotel. And so they served both out-of-town residents and local residents. Um, and, of course, they had some famous um, African-Americans who were, you know, prominent at that time from who stayed at the hotel and um, was one of the first African-American uh, congressmen. Um, Oscar Dupree mm-hmm. stayed there. It was very well known. It was um, considered one of the best hotels on the west side of the Mississippi at the time. It was interesting because it had kind of a family appeal, you know, with 
after church, um, Catherine Bogo, Dick Bogo's mm-hmm. mother would say that they would go there and, and they would have such, you know, you could hear laughter on the streets, you know, after church uh, festivities. And, but, um, but at night, you know, it, it did have some like negative activity in the basement with like a European spa that was operated by W.D. Allen's brother-in-law named George Moore, who was also a boxer, boxing uh, promoter, promoter who opened up a space in Milwaukee. And he had kind of like a, an arena that <laughs> so he operated in the city of Milwaukee. And when you read the early historic newspapers, you see a lot of articles about the hotel being raided, you know, yeah. by the police. He had some drug dealers, you know, even some known in the Chinese community for selling opium. So it, it, it has a very interesting history, you know. It's now owned by, the building is owned by Central City Concern, right? And, and yeah. um, you know, what, what would... uh what would this recognition mean for the building now? You mentioned potentially renovations to the roof or things of that nature. Yeah, you know, and also acknowledgement of that history. Yeah. Um, I know Central City con- Concern, we, we, you know, really didn't have to go to have this nomination. You know, we're very grateful for their participation. Brandon Spencer Hoddle did a wonderful job of explaining, you know, what are these, how can it benefit a nonprofit, you know, organization? We don't really have an emotional tie to the building or to the history, but, um, but they will now have access to funding to help. And I think, I don't really think it, it has so much to do with the incentive as it was their commitment to the history. Yeah. I think their board um, realized how important this meant to the community because this was one, this nomination kind of rose to the top because there's been a broad support, a broad based support for this nomination since the early um, 90s when Catherine Bogo established the Friends of the Golden West Hotel. There's also um, a, a storyboard that's um, installed on the building. So if you walk around, if you walk along Broadway or Everett, the Everett side of the building, you'll, you'll be able to hear, um, the history, um, that's part of this kind of uh, audio storyboard. And so this, I think, um, you know, it's not so much about the tangible benefits as the emotional attachment of the community. Kimberly Brown, along those lines, we're talking about raising awareness for places present and past in Portland that that deserve recognition. I mean, if you were, if you had a magic wand and we could recognize additional businesses, either present or past, um, that are important to Portland that haven't had any recognition, I mean, can you think of any that would come to mind for you or uh, any in in the neighborhood? That's a good question because I read that. Um, um, there's a friend of mine, um, well, an old client of my grandmother's who passed away in the last couple of years, and she's actually was a lifelong member of Mount Olivet. And um, mm-hmm. her, she started one of the first cab companies in Portland, up on Alberta, back in, okay. I wouldn't say, the early 50s as well. And that's something that her son posts about it a lot, on about her life. And Mrs., her name was Willie Mae Hart, and Mrs. Hart did a lot of stuff in the community. I know Kim is probably more versed in knowing all the different businesses. I can't think of stuff, but I know that there's a ton of stuff because I grew up, you know, there's just like regular stuff that you grew up with. You know, it was one of the things like every corner store in Northeast 
in the Elliott Northeast area was mm-hmm. um, owned by somebody's grandfather because it came from the South and the, a candy store is always going to make money. And, you know, so there's <laughs> a lot of different things like that that will go away and go away with history because, you know, people have forgotten about them. They weren't really didn't do nothing for a long period of time, but they were there for maybe five, 10 years. But there's so many little small places that I can't really put a name on, but they were, they were integral in my growing up. You know, we would stop at Mr. Massey's store and get candy from Mr. Massey's store. Mr. Massey was in a wheelchair, but he had that little grocery store. And then there was Cleo Lillian's, which was, which is a wine bar now. And, you know, there, all these things were the first for Portland, you know, because I'm a first generation Oregonian. Most people my age are fr- that live here, that are from here are first generation Oregon- Oregonians. So almost everybody's family had a business. Mr. Mitchell had a plumbing company and Mr. Melody had a beauty supply. There's so many places that are gone now because um, once integration happened and then we lost a lot of our businesses and we were able to integrate into other places. But at the same time, the feel and the structure of, of Elliot is we lost that back then. So I, I know there's a, there's a bunch of places I could think of. I mean, I can't think of the names per se, but there's so many. Yeah. And like I said, Kim would probably be more versed in because that's what she does. Yeah. Kim, maybe because transition to you what what do you know and i, I know once i name some of these places Kim, right. like <laughs> yes you know um because of these nominations i'm you know i'm receiving some wonderful emails and calls and um and one in particular not too far from Solani is now the terry funeral home which is once the office of dr um i believe paul marshall that might have been his son but dr marshall um um had his uh, doctor's office there, and he would also operate in that same facility. And because he wasn't allowed to operate, on, you know, African American was not allowed to, you know, have surgery in some of the larger um, hospitals. And um, then that same site also became the home of the Black Panthers uh, Dental Clinic. And then after the Black Panthers um, stopped leasing the space. Um, Bernie Foster, um, bought the, the place, who is the founder of the scanner, co-founded him and Bobby Foster. And that, that was one of the original offices. And now it's, um, a, a black owned, uh, funeral home. And so that building has multiple history. Yeah. And where, where is and that? Which street? It's, it's on, um, it's, I wonder, it's, it's on Williams okay. Avenue. I don't have the exact address. It's right off of Brazil. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then you also have um, the former home of the Cotton Club, which is right on Vancouver Avenue. I, I believe that's 2024 in North Vancouver. And then there's Cox Funeral Home. It's like you said, once you start talking, I would remember places. There's Cox Funeral Home, which is up on... Um, on, on Rodney, mm-hmm. right by, right off of Knott Street. Then there's Van's Funeral Home. Yeah. And those were two of the biggest um, funeral homes for African Americans ever. And they both are closed now, but. Yeah. And then uh, one recent one that's been, um, coming up a lot because they're activating the space for African American, um, events is the Alberta Art mm-hmm. Center, which is mm-hmm. awesome. It's on Killingsworth. 
Um, it was the Albina Art Center. Yeah, I'm sorry. And I took dance classes there and African dance classes there. See, you were right, Kim. Once you started naming the places, mm-hmm. I can start remembering them. Yeah, it, it, the Albina Art Center. And then another one, Kimberly, you might remember, is the theater on Alberta. Where- oh, the um, Mr. Um, oh, he went to school with my mother. Um, what's his was name? Was it Harvey Garnett? And then it was uh, Mr. Garnett. Yep, mm-hmm. Mr. Garnett. And we used to go to the movie theater there every Sunday. Yeah. So, and that's why I'm glad you asked Kim first, because I really want to know what the community wants. Now, I live outside the community, and I came to Portland in 87. Mm -hmm. So I really want to make sure that the next nomination is is our properties that have ownership by the community and supported by the community. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the ownership. I mean, we're in this phase now where there's... um Finally, it seems like there's at least more public discussion about how do we bring back more, you know, after we talked about gentrification, after we talk about Emmanuel, we talk about raising entire neighborhoods. Now there's at least discussion about how do we increase black ownership. But I'm wondering, you know, what you make of those discussions. I mean, we talk about the Rose Quarter and there's the freeway caps and having, you know, black owned businesses and on top of them, but that project may never be built. I have no idea. I'm just wondering what you make of all of this, uh, uh, Kimberly, and these discussions that have at least been happening publicly for the first time in a while. Can I just share something before um, Kimberly jumps in? You know, one of the things I found out well, would notice in my research is that land ownership was so important. It was, you know, Booker T. Washington came here in 1914, right before he passed, but he came to Portland and his message was land ownership. And he, he was brought here by Alan E. Flowers and E.D. Kennedy. E.D. Kennedy was Beecher's, uh, Kennedy's ex-husband and, and A.E. A- A.E. Flowers was, lived in Elliott and owned several homes and owned a, a farm in Mount Scott. And, and their message was always home ownership, land ownership. And that was something also a lot of the people who lived in the South and when they came to Portland and after the Vanport flood and after World War II, they wanted to own land. And I think we have to, that message has to be carried on to our, to our next generation, to our children, the importance of land ownership, because that build, that's one of the first ways to build generational wealth. And that was a message that was carried on right after slavery, you know, and so, and I think that is, you know, we have to instill the, that value in our younger generation. You don't have the opportunity to have a nationally historic place if you don't have the opportunity to own it. Right. I would have to second everything Kim said because that when I say that the people that bought the houses in after the Vanport flood, they bought houses. They didn't, you know, they weren't renting. You know, when when you, we were growing up, if someone bought got moved into an apartment, that was temporary. That wasn't something that that wasn't going to be your lifelong goal was to live in an apartment. Because as soon as you got an apartment, the next sentence out someone, um, the elders in your family was, when you buy a house. And the unfortunate part is that Portland is so expensive. Mm-hmm. And so even I have two sons and one lives in Los Angeles. And he always says, it's not expensive in Portland, mom. 
because you live in L.A. <laughs> but my son that lives here has a very good job. His wife has a very good job. But it's the, you know, home ownership is eluding them because they want to live in, in the Northeast because they both work in the inner Northeast. And so they don't want to drive, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes every single day. And they want to grow up and they want their child to grow up in the neighborhood that they grew up in. And so that's the unfortunate part is that it's become so super expensive. And then I'm saying, speaking from my kids' point of view, who have good jobs, there's a, a, a majority of um, African-Americans that don't have very good jobs. So uh, buying a home is, is elusive to them because they don't have the resources. So there has to be some kind of, um, you know, my grandmother's like, it's not a, a handout, it's a hand up, but. The reality is there has to be some type of solution for them to be able to buy homes in the community that they grew up in, and in the community that that means so much to them. And that are programs available, like the Portland Housing Bureau have a down payment assistance program um, that you could use uh, tax increment finances to pay for up to um, $80,000. But the budget is not enough to support the need. And when you talk about those kind of programs, also people like my son, a lot of times they don't fit into those categories for those different programs. And that's across the board. That's for any any race of people that are looking for, you know, there's the thing about it is a lot of times the difference happens when, say, so such and such family owns a property and they have so much equity in their house and they can take that equity and give it to their kids on top of the fact. But most of our um kids or most of the people that we're speaking of don't have parents that own homes. You know, everybody's a renter and it's unfortunate because I came from a community of homeowners. Like I can't think of anybody living in an apartment that was grown and had a family and Portland doesn't have projects per se. So everybody bought a house. This is what they did and that's what they came from. So it's, it's an interesting conversation and I could probably go on for two hours, but I won't. Well, is there anything <laughs> else just about the, the, this topic of, of your business and and this recognition that you know knock on wood hopefully is coming um soon in a matter of weeks that you would want to add or anything else i should have asked you i want to thank kimberly moreland and her and the rest of the team for doing such an amazing job and for getting getting me and my aunt to talk about the salon and our family and getting that information out there so Others can see that they have an opportunity to do exactly what my grandparents did. Thank you, Kimberly. And I also would like to thank you know, all of the people. It, it was such a team effort. Um, Katie Ewer and Pat Davis of the Architectural Resource Group were some of the lead, lead writers for the nomination. And, and I just um, had so much fun working on this nomination. And uh, I just really enjoy and uh, working with the property owners because a lot of nominations can't happen without property owners consent. And so it was just, um, a pleasure to, to meet, um, everyone and, um, and listen to their story. And I, and I hope that we can continue to, um, have more nominations in the future. Yeah. Well, we went through a, a bunch of potential next in line, uh, businesses that, that could be coming. So, We'll have to see what happens next. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with you, Oregonian. I shared a link to my colleague Doug Perry's recent story about these historic places in the episode notes. 
If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the program and tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.